Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and inside professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision making. My name is Phil McGee, and today I'm speaking with Will Leach, founder of TriggerPoint, a leading behavioral research and design consultancy specializing in identifying and influencing the key factors surrounding consumer decision making. Simply put, TriggerPoint helps today's largest brands understand and change consumer behavior through behavioral research and design. Will has over 20 years of client-side consumer insights experience in consumer packaged goods, biotechnology, and energy industries, and is a behavioral design instructor at the Cox School of Business, BLC, at Southern Methodist University. Today we'll be discussing Will's new book, Marketing to Mind States, which is as hot off the presses as they come. Will sent me an advanced copy, and I have to say I absolutely love it. It's well-written, well-researched, well-organized, and offers an easy-to-understand, easy-to-apply set of principles for behavior-based research and design. I've read a lot of books on consumer psychology and behavioral economics, and frankly, if I could only recommend just one of them, this would be it. So we're going to talk to Will about his new book, but before we begin, Will, welcome to Shoppernomics. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, our pleasure. And uh, just so everybody knows, uh, Will, you know, you and I... Um, uh, go back a long way, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I've given you a, um, uh, I've, I've introduced you, but but you know, for the audience's benefit, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Well, I'm married, and I have a young son that I talk about in the uh, the book uh, called Nicholas, um, or called Nicholas, named Nicholas. And uh, I live here in Dallas, Texas, and uh, kind of on the on the side, I do triathlons, and I do nothing else but read behavioral sciences. <laughs> I, I fell into that passion a couple of years ago when I was over at uh, PepsiCo, and uh, this is what I do with my spare time. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've seen you present at conferences over the years, and and you're always giving out your reading list, which has <laughs> been you know very valuable. Um, so you know, good that you're out there filtering all the must reads for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, that's well. Somebody has to do it. Like I like I said in the book, right? There's no reason why you should earn a PhD in this material. Let me do it for you because that's what I love to do, and you do what you love to do. Yeah, I mean, if you've got time, go for it. It's worth it. <laughs> but if not, just read Will's book. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so as I mentioned, you and I do go way back. And, and I think the more we've gotten to know each other, the more we've learned the things that we have in common. Um, you know, we, we've both led Shopper Insights function in Fortune 300 companies. Uh, mm -hmm. We're both obsessed with behavioral economics and consumer psychology. And, and we've both applied what we've learned in a wide range of Shopper activations. Uh, we've both chaired industry conferences that focus on Shopper Insights. We both served in the military, me and the Marines, you and the Army. Uh, we've both completed three or more Ironman triathlons. And, mm -hmm. uh, and of course, we both run our own behavior-based research and design consulting firms. Um, you know, in, in your book, and I just want to go back to the first one that I said that we both led Chopper Insights functions for Fortune 300 companies. You, you share several stories from your Frito-Lay days and um, uh, where you ran the, the infamous um, Shopper Lab down there. Mm -hmm. um, that must have been just an amazing experience. Yeah, it, it totally changed my life, Phil. Um, you know, before I was running that laboratory, I was a classically trained marketing researcher. I did my 
um, undergrad and master's uh, work in applied econometrics. So I was a quant jock. And um, I used to remember days where I'd said, why would I ask people what they like or um, what they're looking for? Let me just take a look at their data and I'll predict it. And um, it was working at PepsiCo with some very talented people and the investments that they made in the shopper research space um, where I ran this laboratory. And in this laboratory, we were running neurological experiments, but also behavioral uh, decision science-based uh, uh, research, meaning you know we had a theater about the size of a Walgreens, a little bit bigger, hmm. where we would hire actors and run experiments um, with shopping um, and shoppers. Uh, we said so we'd pre-recruit people to come in, um, and maybe we do something like look at you know do they do they notice a display that we put into an aisle, or do they understand um, or see package changes? And it was through that experience that behavioral economics and behavioral science became very prominent in, in my life. And um, it, it, without that laboratory, I would probably still be sitting at PepsiCo right now, very happy um, in my job. But that laboratory changed everything I understood about marketing and marketing research. Well, there was a, a great example that you had in there that I think was a turning point in your career, which I think you were kind of alluding to. Uh, there was yeah. the, the package design test where the packages didn't arrive on time and but you already recruited a sample, and so you, you ran them through anyway, and you found that, um, um, you know, lo and behold, there was a, a significant difference in purchases mm-hmm. from one day to the next, even though there was no change. And I think your boss called you in and said, um, <laughs> hey, Will, you know, you either uh, make sense of this or we're shutting things down. Um, <laughs> did, did I paraphrase that correctly? Yeah. And, and imagine, remember guys, I came from an applied econometrics background, meaning I controlled for all variables. But yet the end results changed on me. And to me, that shouldn't happen. And that that whole, you know, it's in that book, that whole study changed everything because emotions were not supposed to impact people's behaviors. And what we found when we did a big meta-analysis, I was trying to figure out why in the world would results change from day one to day two if I controlled all the variables. Mm. And what we don't know for sure, of course, those things are very, very difficult to isolate. But we, we found out that the greeter who would come in and, and who was greeting participants in the research study was doing some ad-libbing on day two. We had a script that they're supposed to use, but on day two, um, she ad-libbed. She made it easier. She thought that the script was a little bit more difficult. It sounded robotic. Mm. And we believe it's in the setup on day two and how she wanted people to uh, shop the store or the environment influenced it. And I thought to myself, my gosh, if – something as simple as the way somebody was greeted inside an experiment, what does it mean to us as researchers where we're doing concept tests on, you know, uh, on oatmeal and people are taking concept tests at, at 9 30, 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. What does that mean? And context matters so much. And, 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 and that experiment changed everything in, in, in the way I see research and everything I see in marketing. And then I, I flew and flung myself into every behavioral science book I could. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how fortunate that you had that experience. Um, I mean, that must have been, um, you know, a nightmare at the time when your boss kind of gives you that ultimatum. But um, but but what a difference that's made for for you, the company, the industry. Um, you know, yeah. so many things. So so you know, good 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 thing that that happened. And and in fact, um, I agree with you that context matters. I would say context is king. Um, one of the cool things that you do is you, you kind of give the four factors of context. I'm not going to ask you about that now. We're going to do that in a minute. But uh, so let's, let's just back up a bit. And uh, I'm, I'm just curious as to, 
you know, writing this book, what was the inspiration for you in writing Marketing to Mind States? Yep. So, you know, the reason why I got into behavioral research design was the experiment that went wrong when I was over at the Smart Lab. Um, now, the, I, and, I, and I built a company around that, um, around that experience called TriggerPoint. Mm -hmm. But the reason why I wrote the book was actually another experience that happened to me at a conference uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. I was at a conference where I was asked to sit at a table and basically facilitate discussions around behavioral design. So I'm sitting at a table and lots of clients were able to come up. We had seats for about eight people. And then as people started kind of filling in the tables, there's lots of different tables that people could sit at for different subjects. And my table grew to about 12. And I thought, this is great. These people are coming here and we're going to talk about behavioral design. Now, I was not there to pitch my business. In fact, I was told not to. My job was to facilitate a conversation. So I started to kind of say, start off the conversation and the first hand raised up. And a person at the, uh, at the table asked me, well, what is, before we start, what is behavioral design? I go, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> so I defined the way I define behavioral design. And so I said, okay, so now that we're all kind of at the table, we know what we're going to speak to, this idea of using behavioral sciences, neuro, neuroscience, psychology to influence uh, marketing. I, I asked the next question. I said, so what books are you finding that are very useful in this space? And nobody said a word. It was like crickets, Phil. And I, I sat there and I thought, my gosh, like I read books all the time. And, and in fact, I felt there were a couple of pretty good books out there. But yet everyone at the table was sitting there looking at me saying, that's why we're here. We want to find a book that's easy to read that I don't have to go so deep into all the depths of motivational psychology or jobs to be done or regulatory fit theory. They were just looking for something that could teach them as a copywriter that was at the table or somebody who was running Pharma Insights who has – you know, she looks at big data and she looks at lots of different things. And, and, and so they were looking to me to help understand or find a book they could read that they could just quickly apply. And when they said there wasn't a book out there, I thought – my gosh, there's no book out there. Mm. And so I wanted to write it myself. And so that's what I did. Okay. So you, so you wrote a book and wrote a book. what makes this book different than other books, right? Cause there, like you said, there's a lot to be read out there. Uh, we both read a lot on consumer psychology, behavioral economics. Um, personally, I find that, uh, w what I tend to find in a book is a lot of interesting examples about, you know, how the brain, uh, you know, tends to rely on biases and heuristics to make certain decisions. And it's, it's, you know, entertaining, I find more than, than helpful because I, I find myself reading the same examples over and over again and just wanting more. Okay, great. How do I actually use this for growing my business? Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but I digress. What, what is it about your book that, that you would say makes it different from these other things that you're reading and, and why those people were longing for something more? Yep. So I think that in our industry research, we tend to believe that our job is to educate people. And because if we just educate people into understanding human decision making, that our creative will get better. And I've been doing this now for five years and preaching this, but yet our creative seems to be getting worse. That's my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what? There's something lost in the translation of all these behavioral sciences into easy application. So the first thing I did was when I decided with the publisher, I said, we're going to make this as practical as possible. We are not going to hold back and we're not going to hide behind theory. We're going to write a book that anybody off the street, a real estate agent, a plumber, anybody on the street can look at this stuff 
and apply it immediately. So first off, it's very practical. That's why, you know, in the book title, we call it the practical guide to applying behavioral mm-hmm. design to research and marketing. Um, so I wrote it to researchers for sure, um, but also creatives and brand managers. And that, that was my target market mm-hmm. as well. Small agencies mm. um, that could apply this immediately. The second way or the second thing that makes it different from any book I've read in the space is that rather than rely on an academic study that somebody published back three years ago or whatever, I wanted to use real stories and I use business and personal stories because I, you know, we all know this from behavioral sciences that we are, we understand the world through story. Right. And so I said, well, certainly, um, there are academic stories and we have all heard the same stories. Like, you know, you, you just mentioned Phil, mm-hmm. we've all heard the same stories in every conference and we, we have the loss aversion story and we have mm-hmm. the Dan Ariely, um, economist.com example. We all use that. And I thought, but what if I, what if, how does a real estate agent relate to an experiment done at Duke university? It's mm-hmm. very, very difficult. So what I did was on the beginning of most chapters, I start off with a very personal example, whether it's getting my Sunday vegetables or whether it's me, um, you know, exp- blowing up an experiment at PepsiCo. I wanted to use personal stories that I could, ha- that almost anybody could relate to. So if you're a father, um, the very first, you'll notice the book kicks off with me having to come to grips that my son was born and am I ready to have a kid? And I thought to myself, anyone can relate to that. You don't have to understand university studies to relate to that. And But I always take these stories stories and I apply it to this framework and a model to help you understand if it works for you as a dad, if it works for you um, as it relates to buying a car, then why wouldn't it work for you in running your own business? So the Mm -hmm. second thing was I really wanted to use real stories, business and personal to explain very, very theoretical concepts. And then the third thing was, and um, I had a lot of pushback on this, I'm giving away like everything. What I mean by that is I didn't hold anything back. I didn't I didn't try to in the book say, well, and, and, and start off with a little bit and then say, well, to learn more, you call trigger point. I want the sciences to be used to change an industry. I believe that um, there is a lot to be done in the research space around behavioral sciences and how it influences the way we conduct research. But more importantly, it's really important to start using these sciences in marketing just to make better experiences for people. And so – I didn't hold anything back. And in the book can only be so large. So what I did was in the book, I said, hey, if you want to see the actual tactics, go to go to this website. It's free right there. You can download everything. If you want to understand more about any of these sciences, go to my website. I'll tell you the books I read. I'll, I'll tell you the books where you can learn more about motivational psychology, where you can learn more about regulatory fit. I have case studies on, the, on there as well because I just wanted this to be useful and used by others. And so those three things kind of pushed me – down the path of, of, of applicability. And I'm going to revisit that third reason or third way um, when we get to the end of the interview because I did want to ask a question on that. Um, but on your second way that it's different in, in terms of your storytelling, uh, I've got to say, Will, I, you know, and I don't think it's just because I've, I've been a marketer, I've been a shopper insight practitioner, but your stories are very, very relatable. Um, you know, whether it's about the lab, whether it's about your, um, your wicked, what, what, wicked Chris, wicked, wicked Chris, Chris story, right. <laughs> or, or even back to you becoming a new dad, you know, you, you tell mm. them in a way which you just can visualize yourself in that same situation and, uh, they're hi- they are highly relatable. So, uh, so, so thanks for putting it that way. Um, as I sure. told you, I, I find this book to be a page turner. It's, it's not a typical business book where you kind of like, 
sometimes force your way through it. Um, here, it was like it was just a good book. It was it was it was you know easy to read and and fun to read, but but incredibly educational and and incredibly um, valuable. Perfect. So um, okay, so it's marketing to mind state. So so the book introduces us to a model um, where you talk to a mind state. So so tell us about mind states. What are they? Um, why the emphasis on mind states, uh, you know, how many of them are there and things like that? Sure. So just at, at its highest level, a mind state are these moments of temporary high emotional arousal, um, or what psychologically we call a hot state. And when we're in these hot states, we're more susceptible to influence. So I start the book off talking about how Nicholas is born and he was, he was a preemie. And so in this moment of high emotional arousal, all of a sudden Things that I was going to be very rational, um, my decision making changes to very emotional. Now that's a very emotional, you know, hot state. But we go through these hot states many, many times over the course of a day, and and because of that, we're being influenced by our context, what's around us in these moments, as well as how we're feeling in these moments. And so it's understanding that. You know, um, I often say that we all do segmentations and we all have kind of strong attitudinal segmentations and, and we do a lot of research to understand people's attitudes. And I'll tell my clients, I'll say, well, if you see that the behaviors of your attitudinal segments are not in line with what you would have predicted, right. two things hap- are happening. One, you got a bad segmentation. And frankly, we all know that there's bad segmentations out there. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is that you might have a very good segmentation. You understand people's attitudes. You know their belief systems. You understand their preferences and their likes. But when you did that segmentation, you didn't understand there were moments where these mind states influence their preferences, their attitudes, their beliefs. And so the classic example is where you you, you do research and you find out that these people are very health conscious, but yet – on five, you know, on a Friday, they're out of five guys and they're eating burgers. It's not because they don't have strong attitudes or unhealthy living. It's because five guys on a Friday afternoon, after you've had a really tough work week Mm -hmm. is influencing their decision-making in the moment. So it's really important to understand these mind states of your shoppers, of your consumer groups, and then market to those because in those moments, of high emotional arousal, we're much more susceptible to influence. Like, guys, that's biologically why emotional marketing works. We all talk about we want to get more emotional marketing. I believe there's a science behind that, and it's these four factors that can actually help you understand and design around these mind states. So we don't just have to say we're emotional. Let's put science behind that. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love that because um, I had a, a personal example with, with that same very frustration. Um, we had – in a past life, we had done a, a very thorough, very expensive segmentation, and um, and it suggested that you know one of the segments was this uh, we'll call it a confident cook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are people who who felt felt confident, confident and comfortable in the kitchen. They knew how to make uh, recipes without having to refer to recipe books. I mean, they were real um, you know culinary advanced culinary practitioners. Um, and, uh, but we all, we partnered with a, a retailer that had, um, a massive loyalty card data and we coded their data set and they did a survey to try to replicate the, our segments, uh, which they did. And then they came back and they showed us the shopping behavior and they came back and they said, well, you, you got one of these all wrong because, you know, in store, these people are very frugal. They're always buying the sale prices. Um, they're often, you know, looking for the lower price you know, brand in a category. Mm-hmm. 
and um, and and as it turns out, right, I mean, what this was a function of was different mind states. Um, it yep. was it was the same consumer. It wasn't that no, we got it wrong. It was actually we just didn't get it completely um, because because yep. we weren't able to look at mind states when you do a segmentation. Um, to your yep, point, it happens all the time. I think that's you know if you're in the behavioral sciences literature space, there's this idea around the replicability crisis where yes. a lot of these experiments are being conducted or are reconducted and they're finding, you know, new academic new academics are saying, well, we can't replicate the results. Well, how do you, I'll tell you, and it certainly context matters a lot. So how do you replicate the results of how somebody was feeling the day that they did the first test versus second test? The same thing happened to me at that smart lab, right? Mm-hmm. Because even though you know, on day one, I'm in one mind state. I'm, I'm, I'm the optimistic achiever, but you, let's say I have, I don't sleep well that night, the night before or that, or that, or that next night, or if I'm hungry, those things matter about how, how they influence our mind states. And so I think in large part, the, you know, this idea of this crisis around replication, it could very well be a part because when you first did the study, nobody actually measured the actual mind state that somebody's under. And if we could do that, we should at least be, uh, better able to predict real human behavior if we measure the mind states of people in the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the uh, the replication crisis is is a fascinating uh, and and very disturbing uh, phenomenon right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, I think you said there are eighteen mind states, um, and and your appendix just does a wonderful job of profiling them. And I, and I know even those are truncated versions of the complete mm-hmm. profiles, which I think you make available online. Yeah. Um, they weren't published at the time I looked, so I'm, I'm eager to go on there and, and check them out. But mm-hmm. do us a favor and, and just you know pick a mind state um, and, and describe it just so people can kind of wrap their thinking around that. Sure. So every mind state um, has four different factors, and you'll learn all about these in the book. Um, the first one are people have goals, and so just think about a goal theory or job to be done, jobs to be done theory. Mm-hmm. So in any context or any category, you have functional goals and you have higher order goals. Um, so a functional goal could be something like I want to save time, I want to save money, the things that we typically hear in any type of research. And the higher order goal is something, well, why is that important to you? Well, that could be because um, by me being frugal or by me saving money, I can uh, afford a vacation for my family and that's really important to me, right? Okay, that's a higher order goal. We've been doing that in research forever and that's nothing new. After you understand somebody's goals, you want to understand what motivates them to reach that goal. That's motivational psychology. Yeah. Research will tell you that there are nine core human motivations that drive the vast majority of human behaviors. Things like nurturance, this desire to feel appreciation, love, and feeling of, uh, of care or to provide those. Um, another one is security. It's a classic Um, Maslow, where it's to feel secure, safe, and protected from threats. Or autonomy, that's kind of Desi and Ryan's work around being unique, independent, and having self-determination. So there are nine of these human motivations. And think of those as the engine that drive people to go after their goals. Once I understand their goals and their motivations that drive them towards their goals, the next thing is called regulatory fit theory. And that's this idea that we approach our goals in one of two ways. One is called promotion regulatory fit or through a promotion regulatory lens. And that means that we are seeking to maximize our chances of successfully reaching that goal. You could have the exact same goal, the exact same motivation. Other people will use a prevention lens and they will seek to minimize their chances of not reaching their goal or minimizing risk of loss. So right now you can start thinking through and think, oh my gosh, 
you know, I could frame up a brand very differently depending on whether they are using a promotion or a prevention lens. Mm -hmm. And lastly, is behavioral economics. That's this idea of heuristics. It's understanding um, triggers that get somebody from emotional arousal to actually taking on an action. Behavioral economics 101. Mm -hmm. So a mind state is composed of those two middle factors I talked about. One of nine motivations times the two uh, uh, approaches, either promotion or prevention. So if you take every motivation, if somebody's using that motivation but under a promotion regulatory fit or they're using a promotion approach, that's optimistic. So it would be the optimistic achiever. And you could have the cautious achiever. That would be somebody who's driven by achievement motivations and they're using a cautious or a prevention regulatory lens. So there's 18 total. And um, I know that sounds a bit overwhelming, but very quickly you can find out that, you know what, when I'm looking at your category, we can knock that out. You can read the book and go, there's probably five total mind states, maybe six total mind states. And so what I tried to do was create a choose your own adventure almost mm -hmm. in the book where you go, oh, and there's, there's activities that you do at the end of each chapter that tell you, oh, okay, if I believe that my shopper is shopping under an, a, the empowerment motivation, so that'd be somebody who feels empowered, um, authorized, and equipped to act. And you can very quickly go, okay, there, if you believe that that's the core motivation, we give you methodologies to get there if you don't want to use your gut feel. And you can look at whether they're promotion or prevention. It, goes, you, it tells you right to go to the, the appendix, look up the optimistic empowerment mind state or the cautious empowerment mind state. And you can read all about it. That's, that's really, really good. And, and, these, and when choosing your mind state <laughs> uh, to pursue, um, you know, I think you say – Hey, there are best practices when it comes to research, but you know I also understand there are smaller companies out there that don't have substantial budgets. Um, there are you know perhaps intuitive ways of finding your way there. Yeah, I, I I think that sometimes we underestimate the power of our own intuition. Like if you have been with your company or you've been in your industry for any amount of you know time, uh, you know let, let's just call it, you feel as if you're an expert in that space. You've been in there five, six, seven years chances are your intuition is just as good as really strong marketing research. If you've really been actively talking to consumers, so if you're sitting there and you're, you're running, you know, a cell phone, uh, uh, you know, repair shop in, in, in your, in your neighborhood and you're talking to customers every day, yeah. um, your intuition is actually pretty good to where you can read these. And I, I'm telling you, you can narrow this down. Now you may not be hundred percent accurate, but your intuition is generally pretty good in this space. And so oftentimes I start projects off with my clients just saying, maybe we should, rather than conducting new research, let's look at old research that mm -hmm. you have, run it through this lens, or let's just talk to people who have been on this brand for a while. Let me walk through these motivations and then the regulatory approach. And what do you guys think? And if we have agreement in a room that it's probably, you know, this one or two mind states that we need to market towards, chances are that's correct. Chances are. Yeah. Uh, chances are. Uh, <laughs> glad you put that. I mean, I think that's, and I hope you don't mind me saying, but I think that's kind of the one area we don't necessarily uh, mm -hmm. see eye to eye in the same group. Because I winced a little bit when I when I read that. Uh, <laughs> well, in part because yeah. I'm biased, right? I mean, I, 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 I perform, I advocate research. It's, it's what I do. And, and, um, and, and we all know, you know, the merits of research. I, sure. you know, in, in my world, I've always, I've always at the same time appreciated what I've called managerial judgment. Mm 
um, which I think is, is consistent with what you're talking about, about you know, managerial intuition. And, and I think that absolutely has a, a role in the process because research can only cover so much. And you're right, there's something to be said for the experience of those that have been you know, managing these brands um, and have you know, been trained classically in marketing and marketing mm-hmm. theory for, for you know, in some cases decades. Uh, you can't just overlook that. But I'd hate to at the same time say, you know, that's an excuse to overlook doing some research. I, I think it's the combination of those things that are going to get you yeah. to the right place because it is easy. Um, you know, chances are you'll get to the right place, but but it's it's still an uncertainty, right? And, yeah, and- no, it's an important point. <laughs> no, it's an important point. I like because I look at it as managing risk. If I have yeah. a multi-million dollar product launch, right? Um, yeah, your intuition has my great, great risk. If I'm a dentist, down the street who um, is just trying to make a, a better banner ad, yep. then the cost of doing that research doesn't outweigh the risk of what you could do by just kind of using your intuition, doing A-B tests. So I think risk is a large uh, component of whether or not you should conduct the research or not. What I love about the research industry and how it's evolved, and you've, you've been with me on this kind of evolution in the last couple of years too, our methodologies are getting faster and more cost effective to where now almost anybody can do pretty good psychological research that doesn't have to break the bank. And, you know, a decade ago, that wasn't the case. It just wasn't. Now, you know what, if I'm the local uh, tackle shop, you know what, I can actually do some things that are relatively inexpensive pretty fast and I can be, Mm -hmm. I can validate that intuition. Yeah. And and that's another um, huge piece of value that your book brings, which is, you know, you talk about throughout the book, but then there's also an area where I think you, you summarize this to some extent, or, or kind of research best practices when you're trying to understand, you know, motivations and and, and underlying behaviors um, and, and causals behind them. Um, there are some inexpensive ways of of doing that. You don't need to have a, a substantial budget in every case. Uh, in, in often cases, it's a matter of just asking the right people the right questions in the right context, uh, which as an industry, we know just doesn't happen. Uh, things are done out of context all the time. Things are not asked the right way um, where you know, we tend to rely disproportionately on explicit uh, responses versus really tapping the implicit um, for, for true drivers and motivations. So, uh, so your book does a, a great service by saying, you know, hey, you, know, you, you can do things in, in, in maybe better ways um, without you – know, this, this isn't always about – uh, in, incrementally adding to your research budget, but maybe mm-hmm. incrementally adding to the the, the quality in, in which you of the questions you ask. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So then, um, so so all right. Mind states. Thank you for talking about those because obviously that's that's the, the the backbone to the book. But uh, along the way, you also introduce a, a behavioral change model, um, which I really liked. Um, and, and I thought it was fascinating. Tell us about, tell us about this and, and, and how we should think about it. Yep. So once you understand those four factors, um, you are able to identify a particular mind state and that's important to understand that mind state because when people are in these mind states, remember they're more susceptible to influence because you have higher emotional arousal. You're, you're using more system one types of, um, emotional, maybe processing uh, of stimuli to make decisions. Right. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's inherently nice to know. But that doesn't help us do anything different. It doesn't help marketing. You have to translate these mind states into something where um, you can hand off to an agency, to a marketer, to actually change the way we communicate. We do that through something called behavioral activation briefs. And this was when I was at my my job at Pepsi. 
And we would do deep psychological research. We had an anthropologist on staff. We used to do metaphor elicitation. We used to do deep, deep stuff. And yet when we would try to uh, convey those insights uh, to agencies, they just come from a different world. Mm -hmm. They have different models that they use, and they're very powerful models as well. Mm -hmm. But we have something lost in translation. A behavioral activation brief is a – um, it is a document that we create and they're all up online now that mm-hmm. you can actually download those briefs where it'll tell you some standard things you should be doing down to the types of words, down to the exact feelings and emotions that somebody should uh, be more accepting um, copy examples, visual examples, because we're trying to make that translation from not just the mind state and understanding the mind state, but all the way down to tactics. And so if you incorporate some of these tactics, there's no way you're going to be able to do all of them. But what I try to do is uh, when I evaluate creative coming out of my own team, when we have a, we have a project and we're being asked to take the learnings and apply those to marketing, show us exactly how you would take that insight and apply it into this direct mail piece or apply this under this website. I have this behavioral activation brief. I have a slide that's in that brief that tells me the tactical things I should be looking for. So, for example, the simple one could be that if I am um, if I am uh, messaging to the belonging mind, or I'm sorry, the belonging motivation. So, belonging is uh, this desire to feel aligned, accepted, and affiliated with others, right? So, we want to be a part of a tribe. Some people are driven to be a part of a social circle. Mm-hmm. So, in that case, if I'm looking at creative. And if I don't see multiple people in that creative, it doesn't mean that the creative is, is horribly wrong, but I'm going to question that because the sheer desire for belonging in a group to me requires, and to studies out there that tell me this, require that we show visually other people are in that same group. It's hard to communicate that you're going to be part of a tribe if you don't show the tribe, if you don't accept, you don't acknowledge the tribe. So I start questioning that. The behavioral activation brief will tell your creative teams you should show multiple people in, 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 into an execution. Now, let's say your creative team says, you know what? We chose not to do that. We wanted to highlight the brand or we wanted to do something for whatever reason. I'm okay with that sometimes. Okay, I, I get it because there, there, there's other reasons why you may choose not to take on one of these activations. But if you're not doing enough of them, I'm starting to question whether you really understood the brief and you're taking it into real action. And why it's powerful for any of the researchers out there listening to this Here's what I love about a behavioral activation brief. It takes subjectivity out of a review of creative. So here's an example. You, I'm at PepsiCo and, and you know we're looking at, um, at creative and people say, well, I'm not sure if she's really our brand target. I'm not sure if she, she really expresses the true brand lover. Those conversations to me are okay. What I want to have the conversations around is saying, I, because of this research tells me that we want to create a feeling of reciprocity. We want to trigger reciprocity. We've chosen to do that because we dilated the pupils of the lead model in the creative so that if I, as the reader, look at that lead model and I subconsciously notice that her eyes are dilated, my eyes biologically, as the reader, also dilate. That biological reaction can create a psychological feeling of reciprocity. And if you're interested, it, by me looking at this, this model with dilated pupils, that, that makes me feel like she's interested in what I'm saying. Therefore, I am interested in what she's saying. That's why I tell um, I tell students over at SMU, I say, like, your first date, you want it into a darker, like a nice <laughs> dinner, right? That's why romance works is because eyes dilate. I don't know if that's truly all of it. But 
you will look more attractive um, to your date and vice versa because in dark light, your eyes dilate. And that's a psychological feeling. It creates a feeling of reciprocity. So I'm like, let's have a discussion around that. That's the type of discussion I want to have. I dilated her pupils for this reason. Now, if you chose not to use that model and you wanted to have the model look away from the camera, okay, that's Mm -hmm. fine. But now let's have a dialogue what you're losing. Those conversations CMOs love because it's, it's taking subjectivity because right now basically the, the highest ranking person in the room decides what creative to go forward with and hopefully research does too. But ultimately it's a CMO. I want conversations around I was trying to drive prevention regulatory focus. Therefore, I put in these cues. Let's debate those cues and how those came to life versus something subjective like is she contemporary enough or does she really personify our brand lover important conversations to have but my job is to look at the world through a behavioral science lens creatives jobs or brand marketers jobs are to look at the world through a brand preference lens together it's a really powerful combination Mm, mm. Um, okay so one of the things about your book that um, I think is the greatest value, there's lots of value throughout, but kind of overall stepping back, is how you put everything together in a way that makes it all understandable, which has always been a frustration for me in just trying to understand and, and apply some thought models or cognitive models to behavioral economics. It's like, there's, how do you just... How do you put all this on a page? Now, you know, I think yours is over 200 pages, but, yeah. but, but you did a really nice job organizing it because, you know, in this conversation, we've talked about the four factors of behavior. We've talked about mind states. We've talked about um, behavior activation briefs. We've talked about <laughs> this behavioral change model, right? And so all of a sudden, I can already imagine listeners, you know, feeling overwhelmed with like, okay, this, this is still starting to feel like, you know, more complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you structured this book so that it's not overwhelming, it is easy to follow, um, and then we could talk about some of the details. Yeah, so what I did was I kind of took a, um, I, I broke the book up into three parts, and the first part of the book is really understanding the real drivers of consumer behavior. So I'm gonna introduce readers to the importance of understanding the non-conscious, the importance of system one and system two. But frankly, Phil, I kind of, I'm, I'm assuming that if you're reading a book called Marketing to Mind States, chances are you're going to understand that it's important to understand the non-conscious. So I don't try to educate people into all the deep um, knowledge needed to understand system one versus system two and things like that. I'm assuming that if you're reading this book this far, that you kind of already believe in that. So that's the first part is just getting a basic understanding of the real drivers of consumer behavior, which is context plus psychology. Then the middle part of the book is really talking about those four factors. So it's one chapter per factor. So it's four quick chapters. And again, I try to integrate personal stories and things that are relatable. So you don't have to understand the science behind it. Go, yep, I felt like that. I didn't realize that was my motivation around engagement or I was being driven by prevention in that moment. So I try to do that in those stories. And then the last couple of chapters are, okay, great. You've identified a mind state. How do you apply that mind state to marketing research and your messaging? And so that's where we get into the high level understandings or the, uh, the, the communications of each of those mind states. And then I just try to direct the reader back over uh, to the website. You can download all, all those materials because I really was focused on um, trying to make it very easy and relatable. So even though we have these concepts, the biggest concepts you wanna, wanna, you wanna walk away with are, it's important for me to understand my target's mind state 
and there's apparently a behavioral brief somewhere on this website that I can go <laughs> and it's going to tell me exactly the types of tactics that should work in, in, um, in, in, in hopefully creating that much better, more optimized marketing. The one word I use to describe your book is it's a, it's a masterpiece. Um, but that said, you know, you and I talked privately about whether you had any concerns about writing a book that essentially offers a, you know, a stepwise approach to conducting behavior-based research and translating it to shopper activations. I, I know I certainly had concerns because as we both know, as good as your book is, it, it's not really a substitute for having studied in depth the underlying principles and research studies that gave birth to behavior economics and having experience applying them in real life scenarios. Um, so that said, can you set expectations uh, for listeners and, and readers about what they will realistically be able to do after reading this book? Yeah, I, I think what I wanted to convey was that there's much more that is behind the scenes in terms of all these academic studies. And these aren't just studies, right? We're talking about entire uh, rules of thought and schools that are dedicated to each of these sciences. So understanding, and I hope readers will take away that, wow, if I really want to get into this space, I could spend a decade reading just about goal theory. Mm. You could probably do that. But that being said, the typical person doesn't want to go through all that. So what I want a reader to take away with is that there are small things that you can do to test whether or not you know, by incorporating this one extra word, by reframing your brand to talk about how it helps to mitigate um, your, your, your shopper from making a bad choice, where oftentimes you used to talk about why your brand is helping them maximize a good choice. Small things like that, and that could be literally just a sentence or two inside of uh, a brochure that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Put that back into market and just see how that plays out. So because not everybody has access to all of these resources and that they, they can't do strict A-B testing. So I'm hoping that you would walk away with this saying there are small things I can try. And if you're if you're smart in doing those things, especially in the world where we have online uh, stores now where we can actually do A-B testing pretty quickly, I can put something out on, out on day one I could um, uh, to one audience and on the same day put something out to another audience. It's pretty simple to do um, pretty easy uh, A-B testing to see if this tweak in the messaging works. Yeah. I'm hoping that out of that, um, that people will feel that they're a little bit more empowered to go do that. Um, and on the research side, that's just on the classic business side. But on the research yeah. side, what I want to convey is that, um, you know, what you're doing right now is probably uh, pretty solid work. But yet there's still so much more to be done in the behavioral sciences space. And you don't have to be intimidated by this science because it's becoming more and more approachable every day. Technology is finally catching up with the theory behind all of this. And that just a few good uh, resources, hopefully this book is one of them, there's other books, but also some companies out there that are making these ideas more approachable and integrating those into their own methodologies can allow you to uh, become a behavioral designer yourself. I mean, we, we haven't really talked about behavioral design, but it's a concept in the book. And, and I am a true believer in that researchers need um, to get away from thinking of themselves as just insights providers. I provide insights. My job is to try to create um, um, greater insight or greater predictability in the marketplace. I get it. You should be doing that. But if that's all you're doing, I believe we are out of a job in 10 years. <laughs> I, right, it's right, just right. data is ubiquitous now. And so 
insights are ubiquitous. Everybody has an insights group. Your agencies have insights groups. Your salespeople have insights groups. Everybody has insights. What I want to move us over into the space of providing insights to make a change in human behavior. And that's this concept of behavioral design. So every conference I go to, I'm trying to convince researchers that there is a need for them to get into the application space. I'm not suggesting they have to go out and get degrees in design. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I wouldn't do that. What I am suggesting, though, is that they know enough about the ideas uh, around this book and behavioral design that they can give strong guidance on creative that they see and strong guidance on strategy. And I always say this like, Phil, who better than us? Like who better than researchers to provide this guidance? Because it's something we do every day. We study human behavior every day. Brand managers don't study human behavior every day. They're building businesses. Agencies don't study behavior every day. They're building brands. We're the only people who do this. And so why wouldn't we? We're, we're, we're so qualified to do this job if we would just take the reins of our jobs and move in that space. And every company we've worked with where we got researchers to think of their role as being more than just insights providers to get into the behavioral design space, to take these briefs and provide guidance, like really tactical guidance on how to change behaviors. Not one marketer has been mad. No marketers think that's a bad idea. No CEO thinks it's a bad idea for their researchers to guide human behavior because nobody's doing it. We are the ones who should be doing it because nobody's doing it. Well, well put. And and certainly you've delivered on the promise of all the things you set out to do and, and you've done it exceptionally well. We're on the hour, Will, and I know you have another commitment you need to go to. Uh, quickly, the book is called Marketing to Mind States. Where can they buy the book? Yes, they can buy it at barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. And if you uh, just go to marketingtomindstates.com, um, you can go to uh, um, our resources tab. And again, even if you don't buy the book, you can download behavioral activation briefs. You can download a free chapter of the book. Um, you can download lots of different resources um, to learn more about these uh, these sciences and how you can apply those uh, to your everyday life. Great. And then uh, if they want to talk to you about the book um, or or anything else or your services offered through TriggerPoint, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yep. Um, you can reach me on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, of course. Um, but if you wanted to talk specifically about, you know, maybe even research or consulting, that's our company, TriggerPoint. So that'd yeah. be TriggerPointDesign.com. Excellent. Uh, Will, I know you got to go. So thank you very <laughs> much. It's really been great speaking with you. Um, and thanks for giving us the inside story of your work on, uh, on marketing to mind states. Uh, congratulations for, for a job. Really, really well done. Uh, I'm sure it'll do exceptionally well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll look forward to your next book. Hey, thank you, Phil. I appreciate you having me. All right. Sure thing. Will. take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'd like to give a special thanks to decision breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics. <laughs>